We're going to worship the Lord in song as we do each week, but we want you to know that God is here with us. Praising His holy name.
God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. There is a good enthusiasm here this morning up on this hill, and we're happy you're here. Please reach in the book rack right there in front of you. There's a, a little black folder somewhere along the aisle. And if you'll pull out one of those and put your name on it and give it to somebody sitting near you, I will appreciate you doing that. We thank you for doing that each week. Uh, right now, we are heading into the, uh, actually in the middle of January. And usually at the end of January, we uh, are wrapping up our annual birthday gift to Jesus offering. We are making progress. Here's where we are today. Uh, we are $4,000 away from meeting our goal. And so I want to encourage you to keep praying and keep expecting. Uh, we not only need to reach the goal, we need to go over the goal because what we do is we have a missionary fund. And anything over and above the goal we put in that fund. And that enables us throughout the year to meet, uh, to meet people's needs. Missionaries have problems on the field. Uh, ministries here in our local area, they have problems. Uh, we reach into that fund and we try to help them and encourage them. So I, I want to thank everybody who has had a part. I know this represents a lot of money up here. Uh, if you haven't given to the birthday gift to Jesus offering yet, please do. And if you have, please consider something more so that we can push this over the top. It, it would be great if we could uh, go over that goal and have a good fund uh, to work with throughout the, um, throughout the year. So when you do give for the Christmas, make sure you designate it Christmas so that we can keep it separate. Uh, also, uh, next week uh, is a special week uh, related to human life. Uh, churches are emphasizing the value of life and you'll notice on your birthday gift to Jesus uh, list up here, we have three organizations uh, at the top, uh, the Pregnancy Resource Center in Homestead, Options Pregnancy Center down in Monongahela, Pregnancy Resource Center of South Hills. And we put them on our list this year because these people really do an incredible job. Uh, they take girls that are looking for answers and need help and they not only give them options and they teach them the value of life, but they also bring them to Christ. They win many, many young women to Jesus. And so that's why we put them on our list this year to encourage them because they're out there, they're down in the trenches, really. They're working where it's really hard. And so when you give to this birthday gift to Jesus offering. You are impacting people's lives like that. Next Sunday, Rebecca Boer, who works in the, the Homestead uh, Pregnancy Resource Center, will be here to share with us what they do. Now, the interesting thing about that is Rebecca grew up in this church. Her mom and dad uh, came here many, many years ago. Dave and Mandy Boer, they've been in our church forever. They raised their family here. And now it's really neat. She's over there in Homestead, and she's doing the work of God in a terrific way over there. So she'll be here next week to share with us. Also, I'm going to be talking uh, all the way to the end of January about turning over a new leaf. The way we do this is we create some sort of a systematic 
prayer uh, Bible reading routine at home. And out in the foyer, we have these little schedules that you can chart your progress as you read your scriptures. Actually, this morning, I was, uh, I was listening to my iPad, and uh, I listened to uh, three chapters, and I went and I, I checked off those three chapters in my book, and I keep it right there in front of me so that uh, uh, I have it available. You may set a goal to read the Bible through, in one year, that's a good goal, but maybe, uh, maybe you just will halfway read it through. That's good, too. But if you use this little booklet, it'll at least show you where you're going and give you some direction. So pick up one of them, please, at the end of the service out there in the foyer. Let's stand together this morning as our ushers come, and we'll receive our morning offering together at this time. We thank you every week for your faithful giving to the church. Uh, you make it uh, possible for us to do the ministry that we do here um, from this hill in our local community and through our missionary outreach around the world. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you most of all because you provided this for us. You've given us a means of income, a place to go to work, uh, the ability to do our work, the strength to do it. It all comes from you, Lord. And so now we come back as a church congregation uh, to give a portion of it back to you for your spiritual work in this place. We pray now, Lord, that you'll bless each gift and each giver. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated.
you very much. Let's open our Bibles today, please, to the book of John, uh, the fourth gospel, the book of John, chapter 8. Thank you. I'd like to talk to you today about the statement that Jesus made when he was attending the Feast of Tabernacles, and it is, I am the light of the world. We're going to begin reading today in chapter 8, verse 1. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That's where evidently he spent the night. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. You know, it's amazing when you have something on your mind, uh, biblically speaking, you see it everywhere in the Bible in your reading. If you're thinking about angels, you see angels everywhere. If you're thinking about the devil, you see him everywhere. If you're thinking about the temple, you see it everywhere. Uh, it, just, uh, it just automatically happens. Right now, I'm, I'm seeing Jesus teaching everywhere. And I'm looking at the context in which he's teaching and the reaction that he gets from his teaching is just incredibly stupendous to me. He taught them, verse 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And uh, they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. The religious leaders of Israel were always trying to build up more evidence against Christ, uh, trying to concoct false stories about him doing things that he uh, never, never did and uh, things that he never said and take his words out of context. And here we find another illustration of it. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. But again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and those who heard it being convicted by their conscience. You know, a conscience is a very valuable thing. Some people don't have one, so to speak. These people did. And it was very convicting to them how Jesus handled this situation. He went out, they went out one by one, uh, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And Jesus spoke to them again and saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Throughout the book of John, we have been, we are emphasizing especially the seven sayings of Jesus that he uses to describe to us in what way uh, the God of eternity will meet the needs of people living in time, the God of eternity meeting the needs of people living in time. 
And remember we talked to you about Jesus said, I am the bread of life and he who comes to me will never hunger or never thirst. That means that when we come to Christ, uh, the end of our search for spiritual reality is over, finished. You can never go anywhere farther than that when we come to Christ. And now he's just using another, another example of what he can do for a believer because he is God. Uh, Jesus here uses the statement, I am the light of the world. I want to encourage you when you go home, maybe in the next week, to read the book of John. And every time you come to those two little words side by side, I am, underline them, and I think you'll find that there are at least 23 times in the book of John that Jesus refers to himself as I am. Now, when he did that, what he was doing is he was identifying himself with God the Father in the Old Testament. And these people knew this, of course, a lot better than we know it today because they were versed, uh, the, the religious leaders especially, in the Old Testament. Where did they get this I am? Where did Jesus get it? Well, all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the Bible says this, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, The Lord of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Moses said, When I go to the children of Israel and I tell them what I'm thinking about leading them out of bondage, they're going to ask me who sent me and what should I say? And God said, just tell them, I am sent you, the great I am. For a few weeks ago, I told you that was the most important name of God in the Bible. Uh, it is the name that we commonly call as Yahweh. You've heard that term. It's a... Uh, given to us 6,828 times in the Old Testament. God goes by that name, Yahweh. The I am part of it is an interpretation of that term, Yahweh. And I discovered that as I read through the book of John that there are at least 10 statements where Jesus refers to himself as I am without a predicate. For instance... John 8, 58, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus said, I predate Abraham. And this whole scenario of I am brings uh, to fuller meaning the statement that Jesus made in John 10, 30. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And so when Jesus came down into this world and he kept referring to himself as I am, these people knew what he was alluding to. This particular story is set in the context of the Feast of the Tabernacles or Booths. It was the fall of the year. Uh, this particular month uh, is most religiously intensive for the nation of Israel. It is in this month that their high and holy days are Rosh Hashanah, 
That's the Jewish New Year. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And now we have the Feast of Tabernacles. Whenever they came together for the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, there were certain features that have come down through history, one of which is the huts or the tabernacles uh, in which the people of Israel dwelt in the wilderness for 40 years as God brought them out of Egypt. Uh, this is just an example. It's kind of a temporary makeshift kind of a, a thing that they make in Israel and I think probably around the world when the Feast of Tabernacles comes. And they're saying by this, this is the way we live for 40 years. God took care of us. We built these little lean-tos, so to speak. And if you were to go to Israel today, you would find even in their apartment buildings over there, in the modern part of Israel, at the Feast of Tabernacles, they take their balcony outside their apartment and they create these little places which resemble booths or huts as they have this festival. They're trying to re remember their history because you and I all know if you don't remember your history, you are bound to what? Repeat it, right? And so the Lord created these festivals for the nation of Israel to remind them, listen, I want you to always tell your children where you came from. I want you to always tell your children who your God is. I want you to always tell your children how I protected you and led you through the wilderness, especially here in the Feast of Tabernacles. In order to get the full picture of chapter 8, you have to go look through chapter 7. It was time for the Feast of Tabernacles to take place in Jerusalem, and in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, the Lord says, listen, you've got to show up three times each year. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so Jesus did want to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles, and actually his brothers were pushing him to go up because they said to him, you can't be a public figure out here where we are. You have to go to Jerusalem. And the scripture says that in chapter 7, his brothers did not, did not believe in him. So his brothers went up first to the Feast of Tabernacles, and then halfway through the feast, Jesus showed up. And it's here in our scripture for today that he begins uh, that it was, we find the illustration where he is teaching um, halfway through the feast he came, come, came up and he started to teach the people and the thing that I was noting back in chapter 7 is the fact that the people were amazed at his teaching especially because they said he never went to a rabbinical school there was such a divergence of opinion about Jesus back in those days. As you go through chapter 7, somebody said, well, he's a good person. Another person said, well, I think he's demon-possessed. I think he's the Messiah. No, the Messiah would do more miracles than he's been doing. He's not the Messiah. And so the religious people finally got tired of dealing with him, and they wanted to arrest him, and they sent the guards to arrest him. And I find it so amusing that when the guards came back that the religious leaders sent to arrest Jesus, they didn't have Jesus. And uh, they said, where's Jesus? And their only response was this, no one teaches like he does. The guards fell under the spell of the teaching of Jesus. 
So here we are in chapter 8. He's again in the temple courtyard. And darkness and light are facing off one against another. In this case, uh, it's the religious leaders that have come against Christ. Every day in our lives, this is happening to some degree. Darkness and light faces off. Some of you this last week may have had the most difficult week of your life. You may have said, I don't know how life could get any harder than this. Uh, You may have been uh, bombarded on every side by the forces of darkness. Well, all of us go through those times. And to some and on some days, whether greater or lesser, all, I think this is always happening in our life. Darkness and light are facing off one with another. And so this trick was hatched against Jesus. And if you'll notice with me in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes were the religious scholars. The scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst... They wanted to know what Jesus said about this, and if you study it through, you'll find that this was a no-win situation for Jesus. If he said, uh, I believe she should should pay the ultimate cost, they would go to Rome and they would say, listen, uh, he has taken uh, the law of capital punishment in his own hands, and the Jews couldn't do that. And if he said otherwise, uh, he would be against another group of people. And so this was a no-win situation. Jesus was an enormous threat to the high-ranking religious culture of the day. He was a threat to their power. And so they were building a case against him. Remember last week I talked to you about when Jesus was 12 years old and they went up, his parents took him up uh, to the festival and he was lost up there, so to speak. And then his, mother, his parents went back to get him. And uh, when he went back to his hometown in Nazareth, the Bible says he advanced in favor with God and in favor with man. Now, things have changed. This is a long time later than that. And Jesus has been out on the circuit enough to have lost a lot of the favor of men. Actually, in chapter 7, he says this, The world hates me because I testify about that its works are evil. That's a good way to be hated, you know that? The favor of man is no longer on him. The favor of man is short-lived when truth becomes aggressive. You know, people won't mind or don't mind A Christian family living over here, minding their own business, being kind to everybody, paying their bills, just like every Christian family should. Uh, But as soon as that Christian family opens up about what the Bible says or the truth on a particular issue, then, uh, then the favor of man begins to disappear. Now, that's what happens right here. When Jesus was growing up in Nazareth, people liked him. But now that he's speaking the truth, that's all changed. Maybe this story that we're looking at this morning was prefabricated. Maybe this was all staged just to trick Jesus. 
These people were good at finding false witnesses for their purposes. And so they came to him and they wanted an answer because they knew any answer he gave wouldn't work. And so Jesus knew that too, so Jesus didn't answer. All he did was write in the sand. And I know that there has been so much speculation and so much conjecture as to what Jesus wrote in the sand. Maybe uh, as he didn't answer them and he reached down and he wrote in the sand, maybe he wrote their names down in the sand. And maybe they looked there and said, well, we didn't know that he knew us, but we know that Jesus is omniscient and he knows all things. He knows their names. Maybe he uh, wrote their sins down there. And they were looking as he wrote in the sand about their sins. Or maybe he just wrote a verse of scripture like Exodus 21 or 23.1. Do not pass along false reports. Do not cooperate with evil people by telling lies on the witness stand. Maybe that's what they were doing. Whatever Jesus wrote on the ground really got to them. And they probably thought, well, this man is way too wise for us. We're in over our heads. We need to leave. We need to get out of here. And so I was reading in the Ryrie Study Bible, and he suggests three things that Jesus might have meant uh, when he did this. First of all, he said that he, he said, he that is not guilty of this kind of sin... Maybe Jesus wrote that. And maybe these people looking there were guilty of this kind of sin that they were accusing her of. Or maybe it was just uh, if you are sinless in general, you can cast the first stone. Or maybe if you are sinless in this procedure and testimony. Well, at any rate, whatever Jesus wrote in the sand there, they were convicted by their conscience. Uh, you know, it's good to have a good conscience because it helps us in life. It really does. There are many people in our society today that did not grow up with a father and mother who disciplined them and taught them right from wrong. And as a result, they don't have a consciousness of sin. Uh, we've seen people, and you've seen them on television, and they do something. They have absolutely no remorse whatsoever. They don't even understand that that bad is bad and good is good. They, they don't know. There's really no consciousness on their part. Now, these people had plenty of consciousness because they were versed in the law. They knew what was right and they knew what was wrong. Uh, but there was something else at work here, too. Hebrews 4.12, I think, was at work. Let's read this together, please. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Now, this verse is primarily about the Bible right here. The Word of God is alive. It's different than any other book you have in your library. It's a book that you will always be attracted back to. I don't know about you, but when I read a secular book or a religious book, 
I, I don't have any desire to pick it up and read it again. But I just can't, through the years, keep my hands off of the Bible. It's alive. It's alive. And it breathes life into our life. And it's so sharp that it can do things that other things can't do. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And so when we're reading it, the Lord is speaking to us about not something that's going on in our heart. It gets that deep in our life. And we call the Bible the Word of God, but we call Jesus the living Word of God. And so as he is speaking to these people with his tremendous reservoir of wisdom and ability to handle the situation, this thing is happening to them that we're talking about right here on this, in this verse right here. It exposes their innermost thoughts and desires. They were convicted by their conscience. They were convicted by our Lord's word. And the accusers began to flee. And Jesus um, called her to repentance. He said, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Uh, was it breaking the law that she, uh, that she needed to repent of? Or was it the conspiracy of this plot that she needed to repent of? Uh, Jesus said that on another occasion, too, in John chapter 5, verse 14. He said, sin no more. You know, to be sure, when we are saved, we are saved from the penalty of sin. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Because you never have to, when you're saved, you never have to worry about laying your head down on the pillow at night and the thought of not getting up in the morning. But getting up in heaven is a pretty good prospect, isn't it? And so uh, we're saved, we're saved from the penalty of sin. And the penalty of sin is separation from God in hell forever. That's what the Bible teaches. It never changes. And so to have that off of your back, to have that off of your mind is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But there is this other issue of our daily sins and struggles. Can we leisurely continue in them? Because positionally we are in Christ and we don't have to face future judgment or stand at the great white throne. No. We pay the penalty of our daily sins in this life, so therefore we need to heed the statement of Jesus, go and sin no more. That's a good message for everyone. That's a good message for me. That's a good message for you because we all have our issues, don't we? We all have our failings. We all have our stumblings. We all have our sinfulness. Jesus says, go and sin no more. Uh, and what that does is that gives us a freedom to sidestep the consequences of our mistakes in life. Uh, how many people do you know today as Christians uh, that, that are paying a price for the sinfulness in their life as a Christian? Uh, sin always has to be paid for in some way. Now, when we encounter Jesus, he expects us to not be the same. And uh, when we haven't encountered it with Jesus, he calls us to change. And, uh, and so that's going to be our goal for this next year, isn't it? 
there are some areas in our life that need change. If you're living and uh, your, heart is, your heart is pumping, you're breathing, you need to change. Uh, we need to change some of our attitudes for sure. We need to change uh, some of the places that we attend for sure. Some of the habits that we have, those things need to change. Uh, but everything is possible in Christ. And so darkness and light faces off, and light wins the contest. Jesus said, I'm the light. Just picture the situation. Here's this, uh, here's this thing going on, and all of a sudden, uh, these people began to drift back and leave. Maybe some of them had already had stones in their hand, and maybe the stones just kind of dropped out of their hand, and they said, listen, I, I'm leaving. I'm going home. This is too much for me. Well, you know, uh, light and darkness face off, and light repelled the darkness. You know, uh, some of you listen to J. Vernon McGee on the, on the radio, don't you? He's the pastor that never dies. You know, he's been around forever. And he has this old homespun way that he explains things. And I was reading in his commentary about this passage. And he said, when one turns to the light, all the rats, the bats, and the bedbugs crawl away. So that's why you like him so much. He just gets down where the rubber meets the road. J. Vernon McGee. Well, whenever the light comes on the scene, uh, a lot of darkness runs away. And so Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. When the light of Jesus is shown, there are two reactions, to run away from it or to walk in the light of it. And uh, I know that you've had this experience. Whenever you take the light to someone, people really, they run. They run. And sometimes when they see you coming, they, they make sure they're going another direction. Uh, they're still running. And on the other hand, you've had this reaction that when somebody loves the light, they love the light. They love to be in the light. They love to absorb the light. Uh, when people really meet Jesus, the light goes on. And in this particular story this morning, he is fulfilling the images of light. It's been suggested that uh, this is the day after the last great day of the feast. And there was a custom at this particular time that the Jews added a ninth day to the feast. And they termed that day the feast of joy of the law. And this makes sense. And on that day, it was a custom to take all the sacred books out of a chest where they had been deposited and put a lighted candle in its place. And the lighted candle was an allusion to some scriptures. The first one is Proverbs 6.23. Let's read this together. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law a light. Reproofs of instructions are the way of life. You know, we need a lot of instruction through life, don't we? Because this is a long journey. We start out serving the Lord, and we know this little bit of information, and the Lord says, listen, I want to give you more than that. You've got to have more instruction than that. And throughout the rest of his life, he is instructing us, but where do we get our instruction? The commandment is a lamp. The law is a light. We get it from the word of God. Another verse that this depicted is Psalm 119, 105. 
and you're so familiar with this. Let's read it. The word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so I think on the ninth day, the day after the last day of the Festival of Tabernacles, the emphasis was, listen, we're going to go back home. We've had a great time. We've had a, a, an awesome time of remembering how God delivered us in the wilderness, but now you have to go back to the nasty now and now. And what are you going to do then? How are you going to handle the 15th day and the 20th day and the next month and the next month? How are you going to handle that? Well, this is how you're going to handle it right here. The word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. They emphasize the images of light. The Messiah in the Bible was depicted as a person of light. Isaiah 60 verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. The Pharisees must at once perceive that he intended to reconcile to recommend himself to the people as the Messiah. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, they knew what that meant. He said, if you follow me, you'll not walk in darkness. Uh, I'll light your way. Now, we live in a dark world, don't we? And I certainly don't want to elaborate on that because we get filled with that all week long, don't we? Every time we look at anything that looks like news, it gets worse, and we look at it again, and it's worse again. We're living in the most dangerous time of the world. The whole world could go up in smoke, and you know it. And so we're living in a dark world, and Jesus said, Listen, I'm the light of the world. Uh, follow me, and you'll not walk in darkness. Uh, we live in a world where unbelief is, uh, is dark, and it actually leads to outer darkness, and that's just a synonym for hell. Uh, people today don't know that they are dead in sin and they don't know where they are. They're separated from God and they don't know for sure where they're going. Their best hope is I hope. And the only thing they have going for them is hope. Hoping. Well, that's not very much. When they could have something much, much greater than that. 1 John 5.13 says... These things have I written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The greatest thing in the world is to know you have eternal life. Uh, Jesus wants us to be followers of light and he spoke to his disciples and he gave... Now this is interesting. He spoke to his disciples and he gave them... Uh, he said the same thing. Matthew 5, 14 and 16, you are the light of the world. Now, let's try to digest this this morning. It's, this is a little hard. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do the light, they light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So we don't have a problem with Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. Jesus kind of turned it around and said, now listen, you're the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And so that puts a lot of uh, responsibility on us. It really does. And he said, I want you to go out. He says, don't hide your light. 
Years ago, we used to teach the little kids in Sunday school that song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Gonna Let It Shine. Um, and he says, Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so this is incumbent upon you and upon me to be the light that God wants us to be in the world. And so this means that when you go to work on Monday, the Lord looks down and he says, listen, John, listen, Bill, listen, Mary, you're the light. You're the light. I told you one time a man who worked in the mill came to my office a long time ago and he said, I'm just so depressed. They call me preacher there. They make fun of me. I think I'm the only Christian in the whole place. And I said, have you ever thought that, that you're the light of the world? That God sent you there to be the light? Well, I think that helped a little bit, but I think it should help all of us. Uh, you know, we get the light that we get to share with other people, we get from Christ. And as we turn the light on in our life, and this is as simple as I can get. Light on, light off. Light on, light off. As we assimilate the light, we are energized by the living word to take that light and to be the light of the world. And Jesus said, listen, any light is not supposed to be covered up. It's supposed to be for everyone to see. Let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let your light shine. And so here we find Jesus making this statement. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. The nation of Israel made it through the wilderness for 40 years, and they followed that pillar of fire uh, that God sent them. And uh, when, that, when that pillar was out in front of them, they followed it. And when it stopped, they stopped. And when it continued on, they continued on. They followed the pillar of fire, which was the Lord. And today, we follow Jesus. And uh, he said, listen, just follow me. And how do we know how to follow him? Well, we follow him right through here, page after page. We follow Christ. And he said, if you do this, you won't walk in darkness. You'll be the light of the world. Let your light shine. Let's bow our heads in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed today, I want to ask you uh, about your light. First of all, you have to assimilate some. Absorb it. Internalize it. Let it do a spiritual work in your heart. And then share it by what you say and what you do. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The only way that our works can glorify God is, is if they are for God. If we're doing it for him and not for human applause or accolades. 
I wonder if you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've been religious but, uh, but lost. Maybe you're here today and you're looking for Christ. Well, let me say he's looking for you too. And never has a seeking sinner and a seeking Savior ever failed to meet. And so right there in your seat today, you can open your heart to Christ by confessing your unbelief to him and accepting his forgiveness by faith, not by works, but by faith. And you can call out on his name and ask him to come and forgive you. And I'll tell you, he will run. He will run to forgive you if you come to him with a humble heart. And so let's just take a moment and uh, let's all of us on this second Sunday of the new year look down in our heart to see what God's talking to us about today. Some people here need to just come to Christ and believe in him and embrace him for who he is. He is the great I am. And he has the light that you need to walk through this dark world. There are others here, maybe you, maybe you have been what we call a nominal Christian. You show up from time to time. But you're not growing as a Christian. You're not developing. You have very little or nothing to share with others who need the light so bad where you work and where you live. Let's just ask the Lord now in this time of invitation to do a spiritual work in our heart for this, especially as, we, as this new year dawns in front of us. Dear Lord, we thank you for this your word. Uh, I just pray that as uh, we have uh, just scratched the surface of this incredible encounter, the story, that you will have done more than that in our heart and opened our heart to some truth that we need for today. And I pray that, uh, that you will pour into our life the application that you want us to have from this message. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the Lord's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and be dismissed. Turn around and shake hands with a number of people near you. God bless you. You're dismissed.